0: We've got another vaccine. The FDA officially issues an emergency use authorization for the Moderna vaccine, clearing the way for another round of vaccines to make their way to Americans. Meanwhile, SARS-CoV-2 is mutating, and scientists in South Africa and the UK claim that a new strain there may be up to 70% more infectious. Congress looks to finally have reached an agreement on COVID-19 relief. But is it too little too late? This is America Dissected. I'm your host, Dr. Abdul al sayed Happy holidays, everyone. Stay safe. Trust is a fickle thing. It's hard to build and easy to lose. And right now, trust is in short supply. We've come through one of the hardest years in modern history. Nearly 2 million worldwide have lost their lives, and millions more have lost their livelihoods. In the U.S., where perhaps the worst of the pandemic took its toll, We've lost nearly 320,000 people. Millions have lost their jobs, and with them, their health care, their homes, and their security. Thousands of small businesses have been crippled. At the helm throughout this pandemic, we've had a president that has denied the pandemic, downplayed the suffering, and disregarded the science. And yet, this was Vice President Mike Pence, who's aided and abetted that president after he got his COVID-19 vaccine.
1: Karen and I were more than happy to step forward to take the safe and effective coronavirus vaccine that we have secured and produced for the American people.
0: Ostensibly, Pence publicly took his vaccine ahead of millions of others, including frontline healthcare workers, to build trust for the vaccine. But in order to do that, you have to admit that we've been suffering through a pandemic to begin with, which is why it's hard to take him seriously while he's been shilling for a president who's been saying this all along. But don't let it dominate your lives. Get out there, be careful, be careful. We have the best medicines in the world. For his part, after repeatedly downplaying masks, still the best, simplest, and most affordable way to protect ourselves from contracting or spreading the coronavirus, this was President Trump. And by the way, don't let Joe Biden take credit for the vaccines. If Joe Biden, you know, Joe Biden failed with the swine flu. It's no wonder trust is in such short supply. And though these people have clearly demonstrated why we cannot and should not trust them, they're on their way out, finally. And yet there are a lot of things we do need to trust. First, we need to trust each other. We need to believe that we can and do have each other's backs again. After all, every time one of us puts that mask on, every time one of us chooses to stay in, every time one of us puts our shoulder forward to get a vaccine, we're doing it to protect ourselves, sure, but also to protect each other. And I know it can feel like everybody's making bad decisions all the time because that's all we see when we click on the news or doom scroll Twitter. But remember, the news covers the unusual, not the mundane, normal stuff. You don't ever hear the headline, man and child wear masks at grocery store. Why? Because it's the norm. What makes the other stuff newsworthy is that it's not the norm. And that tends to cover up the fact that most of us are doing our best to make great decisions every day. And we're doing it for each other. And we need to trust each other to keep making those good decisions. The second thing we need to trust is science. As you all know, science always wins. And there are thousands of scientists, dedicated researchers and doctors and clinical volunteers who've gotten us to this point. We don't have just one, but two safe and effective vaccines in record time. And those folks did their work to save lives, to save our lives. And we need to trust in their commitment, their attention to detail, their knowledge, and the painstaking process of scientific discovery. And finally, we need to trust that we can get to the end of this thing. It's not going to be easy, man. It's not going to be as soon as we want but there's a light at the end of the tunnel. In January, our country will finally have new leadership, women and men who are dedicated to getting it right. But the lack of public trust and the mess they've inherited won't make it easy. Today, I talked to Helen Branswell, a senior writer at Stat News who's been covering global health and infectious diseases for a long time. She'll talk to us about the opportunities and challenges the Biden administration will face as they take office. After the break. Our guest today is Helen Branswell. She's a senior writer of infectious diseases and global health at Stat News. Helen, thank you so much for taking the time to uh, join us today. My pleasure. You've been thinking about and writing about pandemics and their potential for a long time. And you've been covering this particular pandemic since the very beginning. If you took the long view, step out for a second. Where are we in this pandemic? People are talking about the end of the beginning, the beginning of the end, the middle. Uh, how, how would you think about it?
1: Well, I think about it a couple of ways. I think we're in a mess, <laughs> in an unbelievable mess. I would say that I would never have expected that the United States would be in this dire a situation, that it would have handled a pandemic this badly. Mm. The other thing I would say is I do feel that, you know, whether you want to call this the end of the beginning or the beginning of the end, I'm not sure. But the fact that vaccines are starting to be used and that they appear, at least in the clinical trials, to be highly efficacious does mean that we've turned a corner that said, you know, (laughs) the road to normalcy is not going to be a short one, I don't think.
0: Mm. I think people don't also appreciate is that Two things. Number one is that this is going to be the hardest phase of the pandemic. We are in not yet seen territories of hospitalizations and mortality. And then the other thing is like, there's not somebody who comes and taps you on the shoulder and says, all right, it's done now. Everybody go out and go back to your life. How do you feel that changes the psychology of thinking about even where we are in this kind of a pandemic?
1: I agree with you. I think it's a very dangerous time right now. I mean, there's so much virus circulating in the United States and in you know other countries, a number of which, especially I'm thinking here of Europe, that had managed to bring levels down pretty low and live relatively normal lives over the summer and are now dealing with a lot more transmission. People are tired and fed up with this and want to go back to their normal life. And Yet, because we haven't taken the steps needed to to try to keep transmission within manageable levels, our hospitals are overwhelmed, and it's not yet full-on winter. Everybody's hoping that this is going to be a mild flu season because of the fact that people are wearing masks and that distancing may cut down on influenza transmission, but If it isn't, if there is flu and there is COVID, I mean, we're going to have a massive problem, much bigger than we already have. People are seeing the light at the end of the tunnel and may be tempted to think that they can let down their guard or they can get together with their family over Christmas holidays. And the reality is the rollout of vaccine is going to take quite a long time, probably longer than we're being told. And, you know, even then, it's going to take a while for us to find out how effective the vaccines are in controlling transmission. So we have this period before us where things are likely going to start to get better, but some months down the road, and we have this winter ahead of us
0: Mm. still. And one thing that's happening, of course, is that we are transitioning political and government leadership in the middle of this. What are the key things that the presidential transition Have to be focused on and have to get right with respect to this pandemic on day one.
1: A smooth transition of Operation Warp Speed would be a very useful thing. There's a lot happening there and there's a lot of knowledge there about what is coming, what the pipeline looks like, when deliveries are going to take place, and how deliveries both from the manufacturers to the United States and from Warp speed warehouses to the states and territories and tribal councils. So having a seamless transfer there would be really, really important. Also setting an example from the top down, I think will be very important. The example President Trump has set has been that COVID is not something you need to worry all that much about. And that is just not true. And so a president that takes it seriously and wears a mask in public and models for people, the type of behavior that they should be observing, you know, I think that's going to be important going forward.
0: Yeah. One of the points that we just sort of contrasted is that we're in the middle of a transition, but President-elect Biden doesn't take office until January 20th. And much will have passed between then and now in the thickest and deadliest part of this pandemic. How much do you think that President-elect Biden can do simply by doing that soft power work of modeling good behavior, of talking about this in a collective manner? And what kind of impact do you think that has both in the day-to-day of what happens in this really tenuous period, and then also how it sets a stage for trust in his vaccine, but also his overall pandemic response?
1: To be honest, I'm not sure what the answer to that is. I mean, attitudes towards The coronavirus or, you know, Rona, as some people like to call it, appear to be really baked in and follow political lines. People who support the president-elect, I think, are among the people who are already taking this seriously. And I don't know what happens when President Trump leaves the White House and President -elect Biden takes office. I'm not certain how much sway he has with the president's supporters who have been among the people who have resisted control measures like wearing masks or shutting down of some businesses when that's been needed that said people living in you know the states that are are really red and have big supporters of president Trump have been paying a heavy toll with this pandemic in the last few weeks, and will continue to over the coming weeks of the winter. So I don't know, perhaps with a up-close experience with the virus, there will be more acceptance of the need to take precautions.
0: As someone who spent some time in both politics and public health, I have been, I'll be honest, taken aback by just how politicized this pandemic has become. And what's really interesting right now is that where the president signaled to his supporters, you know, around masks and around physical distancing. It's clear that people have not heeded public health warnings. And yet at the same time, you would expect that intellectual consistency would suggest that a lot of these folks would choose not to get a vaccine either. But at the same time, the president has been Uh, really a big proponent of the vaccine and has done everything he could to take credit for that vaccine. And it may actually create the circumstance where a lot of his supporters, though they may not have masked up and they may not have physically distanced, that they may be willing to take a vaccine. How do you think about the interaction between politics and this vaccine? And how do you see it playing out?
1: Yeah, that's an excellent point, but I'm not certain I know how to predict how that will play out. The president had expressed some vaccine skeptic views before he was elected to office. And, you know, there was a a lot of concern. You'll remember early on, he'd been talking with Robert Kennedy Jr., who had said that he was going to be appointed to chair a commission that was going to look into vaccine safety. It did not come to pass. But the president hasn't vocally been a huge supporter of any vaccines except for these vaccines. And, you know, it seemed in this case, that his support of them was based on the fact that he seemed to feel he needed them to deliver on them before election day. I think it's going to be fascinating to watch whether or not the president agrees to be vaccinated in public in any other time with any other president, especially a president who is over 70 years of age and somewhat overweight. Even though he has been infected himself in the past, you would expect that person to roll up their sleeve to show the public that this is what we need to do now, there's been no talk of President Trump doing that. And in fact, when the White House has been asked, I think they've responded that as he has been infected and survived, that he has some antibodies and he's not a high priority or something like that. If the president wanted his supporters to get these vaccines, footage of him being vaccinated would be a really useful thing.
0: Yeah, uh, it it absolutely would. And you make a really, really important point here. When we think about this transition, the new incoming White House is going to have to hit the ground running. You talked a bit about Operation Warp Speed and the critical aspect of being able to transition that well. What are some of the other considerations, particularly as we come to hopefully a close of this pandemic in the first year of that new administration, What are some of the other pieces of the puzzle that you feel like they need to get right? Some of the things that maybe somebody who's watching this pandemic might not be paying attention to?
1: Well, I mean, obviously, there are financial issues. I'm not best placed to comment on them. But there are many, many parts of the economy that are hurting badly and need support. And that work, although I read something that suggested that maybe today there's going to be some progress. You know, that work has been stalled in Congress and they're going to have to find a way to to keep multiple aspects of the economy afloat. You know, another thing they're going to need to do is find a way to shore up the flagging reputations of the Centers for Disease Control and the Food and Drug Administration, uh, both of which have emerged from this last year with Kind of tarnished reputations, the the CDC in particular. They had a problem early on with a test that didn't work very well. And, you know, that can happen, but the timing of it was exquisitely unfortunate. And people have used that early mistake to justify the sidelining of the organization. But the fact is that an agency that is considered sort of the model globally for a public health agency has been silenced and effectively sidelined by this administration and it's not going to be a quick or easy job for the agency to regain credibility across a wide spectrum of the the population it's going to be crucial that it does but that's going to be a bit tough FDA also had problems notably with the emergency use authorizations for hydroxychloroquine and some other therapeutics. It seems to have regained its footing with the vaccines and prevented the vaccines from being pushed out as an election tool before they were fully tested. I think in the case of both those agencies, what's going to need to happen is that the president is going to need to show that he'll live up to, you know, his pledge to follow the science and let the scientists do the talking on some of these issues.
0: One of the torturous ironies of being in public health in the midst of a pandemic is that public health at its best operates in the background. It operates before something like this ever happens. And its job principally is to prevent it from ever happening. And here we are talking in some respects about a public health catastrophe you know, that we failed to prevent. And so much of what we need to be thinking about is how do you stop the next one? What are some of the things based on your writing about pandemics in the past and what went wrong here? What are some of the things that a Biden administration can do to make sure that we don't get it wrong next time?
1: Well, hopefully a Biden administration won't have to fight another pandemic. Hopefully we'll have a a a bit of a breather between this one and the next one. But certainly, one of the things that often happens, I'm sure you've had this experience in your experience in public health, there's a big problem and it requires everybody to work round the clock for a prolonged period of time putting aside all their other work and when it's over even though everybody knows what really needs to happen is that there has to be a very serious hot wash or evaluation of how things went so that people can learn from their errors and sort of shore up systems prepare for the next time everybody's exhausted and they have let all sorts of other work languish they've been forced to let it languish and so they move back to their other jobs and although there are generally debriefs of some sort they don't take hold in the way that they really ought to, it would be really important for the United States to spend a significant amount of time figuring out how this got to be so bad in this country. I mean, the country leads the world in cases and deaths and going into a pandemic, no one would have bet that the United States would be at the top of the chart for cases and deaths.
0: hmm That's very well put. There is a lot that I hope we get right in terms of investment in the underlying resources of public health, investment in people in public health, and an honest assessment of the back and forth between different levels of government and different agencies that need to coordinate so much better than they did this time to get it right next time. But you're right. I mean, that's the thing is that there's so much work that gets pushed aside and that work has to be picked up because, of course even as we're dealing with this situation with COVID-19, people are still dying of all of these other preventable diseases, right? The opioid epidemic didn't go away. In fact, it, there's some evidence that suggests it got worse. People dying of heart disease and, and, and cancers and strokes. And oftentimes in this circumstance, without the trust to be able to go to the healthcare system and get the care that they need. And so that's a really important point. We can't lose sight of all of that work that needs to be done, and then all of the the learnings uh, that have to go on.
1: Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, among the things that you were just listing off there, I mean, I was thinking as you were doing that, infectious diseases that are not called COVID (laughs) during this whole time, there's been reports that immunization rates, both in children and adults, have fallen dramatically. And so, you know, we could come out of this pandemic and then see spikes in things like measles outbreaks and even, you know, cases of tetanus because people haven't gotten vaccinated during this time. So there's a ton of work that public health is going to have to do when this is over. And as you're pointing out, and I know you know from your experience, that's a sector that's chronically, tragically underfunded.
0: Yeah. Do you feel like there's a way that this gets funded back in the way that it needs to because that's the ultimate question right is that you know public health has been so underfunded for so long and this is what happens when you don't when you don't invest in a thing that's intended to prevent a bad thing from happening is that that bad thing happens and then you wonder why it happened what do you think are the prospects for the kinds of investment that we need in public health moving off of this pandemic into the future
1: so I'm a science writer, uh, and I'm reluctant to venture an opinion on that because these decisions were made based on logic and need. We wouldn't be in the place we're in. Clearly, there are factors at play when politicians sit down to decide how to spend money that I don't understand. And so I'm not sure I'm I'm best positioned to be able to say. You'd like to think it would change, but... I don't know. I just don't know.
0: I hear you. That's the frustrating thing, right? Is that the forces in our society that tell us that we don't have the money to invest in these kinds of things aren't really going away. And that really is the the scary part. Well, we're really grateful to have folks like you explaining it to us and in showing us some of the consequences of those past choices. And so thank you for joining us today to to share your insights and your perspective. Again, that was Helen Branswell, a senior writer on infectious diseases and global health at Stat News. Helen, thank you so much for your time.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: As usual, here's what I'm watching right now. Scientists in the UK and South Africa have found a new variant of the coronavirus. Infectious disease modeling suggests that the new variant with changes to its spike protein, the mechanism the virus uses to infect people, could be up to 70% more transmissible. Importantly, there is no evidence that this new variant could evade the new vaccine or that it's more deadly. All of this puts more pressure on vaccine deployment. After all, with the virus mutating, we really want to quash it before it has a chance to evade the vaccine too. That means getting 60-70% to of people vaccinated over the next year is going to be key. On that front, though there have been some challenges with deploying the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine, the fact that the first doses have been administered across the country is a big deal. Having a second vaccine available will speed up the process of getting vaccines out to people who absolutely need them. But I worry that having multiple vaccines might confuse the process as people might try to hold out for one vaccine or another. First of all, these vaccines aren't that different, and I cannot stress enough how critical it is that people take the first vaccine available to them. Every day we prolong this pandemic is another day that thousands might die, thousands more getting sick from a disease we can now prevent. And this week, millions of people are making decisions about how to spend their holidays. And those decisions will fundamentally shape the experience we face in January and February. Given the fact that the virus continues to spread, and we're only now facing the spike in cases and deaths that resulted from Thanksgiving, it's key that we make good decisions. I know this is hard. Though being Muslim, my immediate family and I don't really celebrate Christmas or Hanukkah or any of the other winter holidays. A lot of my other family do. And I always value the time that the holidays give me to relax and enjoy time with family and friends. And so many of the things I would have really looked forward to in a regular year travel, gatherings with family and friends, and holiday shopping, particularly the day after Christmas we won't be doing any of them in the same way. I can't imagine the sense of sadness and loss for folks who are celebrating holidays. But let's make sure that even if we can't be together this year, we do everything we can to be together in the future because we've done what it takes to keep our families healthy and whole. To all of you celebrating, happy holidays. Please stay safe. And if you missed the announcement last week, we just did a restock on our Science Always Wins sweatshirts, t-shirts, and hats. They're going quickly, so make sure to grab one before they're gone at crooked.com store. America Dissected is a product of Crooked Media. Our producer is Austin Fisher. Veronica Simonetti mixes and masters the show. Production support from Tara Terpstra, Lyra Smith, and Alison Falzetta. The theme song is by Take Yasuzawa and Alex Sugiera. Our executive producers are Sarah Geismer and me, Dr. Abdul al sayed your host. Thanks for listening. Again, happy holidays and stay safe, everyone.